on page 1015. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart and with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Thank you. You may have a seat. Well, today we're going to talk uh, from God's Word here about marriage. We've been studying through the book of 1 Peter, and uh, back in chapter 2, verse 12, uh, the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' core disciples, is writing this letter, and he instructs us to, to live lives that are honorable uh, among outsiders so that people will see our good works and glorify God. And then he begins to talk from there about uh, how, how followers of Christ are to have a, a submissive attitude, a humble attitude. He talks about submission to government authorities. He talks about submission in employee-employer, uh, slave-master type relationships. And now he moves in uh, to the home. He brings it uh, closest to where we live and think. He brings it into marriage. And he's going to talk about how this attitude of, of humility and selflessness needs to permeate marriage. Marriage is something everyone has an opinion on, uh, whether you're married or not. And, and many in our church are married, and, and you know what it's like to have moments where it's good and moments when it's bad. I, I remember talking to a guy uh, one time. Well, this was a few years ago now. And, and he was just, his name was Cal, and he was just sort of this fiery old guy. Uh, you know, and, and I talked to him, and, and he and his wife, you could just tell by looking at him, had been married a long time. And, and I said, Cal, how long have you been married? And he said, I've been happily married for 47 years. And 47 out of 56 ain't bad. <laughs> and Cal was saying what we all know, that there's sometimes when marriage is great, and there's sometimes when it's not. And, and many of us would be really blessed to have 47 happy years of marriage. There's an assumption in our culture that, that marriage is not actually going to be a path to happiness. Uh, that's an increasing view, a growing view. People are, uh, more and more people are not getting married. More and more people are getting married later. Uh, the statistics on, on people wanting to get married is not particularly good. Chris Rock, a prophet of our day, says it this way. His question is this, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? And some, I think, feel like that's what your choice is. You can either be single and lonely or married and bored. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't, marriage doesn't have to be boring. Marriage doesn't have to be lame. Marriage doesn't have to be filled with pain and arguments and hurt. Often it is, but it doesn't have to be. And, and God's word gives us a path, gives us a direction towards how we can have a great God-honoring marriage. There is a way to do this, and, and God's Word tells us. And so here's kind of the big idea for us today, is that a great God-honoring marriage only comes through selflessness. 
The good news is you can have a great God-honoring marriage. The bad news is you're going to have to die to yourself, which, as Jesus would say, is actually good news. I'm going to quote a lot today from uh, the fourth member of the Trinity, Tim Keller. No, just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Tim Keller is a pastor and an author that I like a lot, and I quote him quite a bit. And he has a book. I meant to, I meant to grab it and bring it up here. I didn't. Uh, but I've been reading it, and it's, it's the best marriage book I've, I've seen. It's called The, the Meaning of Marriage. And uh, I'm going to share with you a number of quotes uh, from this today. We got some extra copies. They're at the book cart uh, out in the lobby. There's a bunch of extra copies. They typically retail for about 26 bucks. It's a hardcover book. We have it for 20 And so would love for you to pick this up. It's an incredible resource. And here's something that he says about this need for us to have selflessness. Uh, Tim Keller says, Self-centeredness is havoc-wreaking, is a havoc-wreaking problem in many marriages. And it is the ever-present enemy of every marriage. It is the cancer in the center of a marriage when it begins, and it has to be dealt with. I think that's an interesting way to talk about it. See, self-centeredness isn't the cancer that comes in later. It's there at the beginning. When you get two people who are sinners, two people who are selfish, and you put them together, that's a recipe for disaster unless this selfishness is dealt with and fought and rooted out. A great God-honoring marriage is possible, but it only happens through selflessness. And in this particular passage, uh, Peter is going to address what that selflessness would look like, uh, specifically first to wives and then to husbands. So first, a great God-honoring marriage, it happens when a wife selflessly submits to her husband. When a wife selflessly submits to her husband. That's what Peter says in chapter 3, verse 1. Grab your copy of the scripture there. Uh, Peter says, likewise, wives, be subject to to your own husbands. Notice he begins with the word likewise. Uh, this is tracking this. This is in connection with what he's been talking about up to this point. He started in verse thing, verse 13, be subject to the Lord's sake to, to government. Uh, verse 18, servants be subject to your masters with all respect. Now he says verse, verse 1, likewise, in the same way, with the same attitude, with the same heart of humility, wives be subject to your own husbands. A couple of things that are important here. The, the, the word be subject uh, is also translated in other places, submit. It's a very similar passage to what we read in Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3, that, that the role of a wife is to be subject, to submit to her husband. What does that mean? Well, it means this. It means to place yourself under. It's an attitude of humility, an attitude of placing yourself under. By the way, not real popular idea. I don't know if if some of you are already bristling at this whole idea. But but what I want to show you is that this idea of being subject, this idea of, of, of submitting is actually rooted in the Trinity. It's actually rooted in God himself. See, see, the reality is that men and women are created equal, but they have different roles. Equal in status, different in roles. And that's the exact same of how God is. Think about this verse for a moment. Look at 1 Corinthians 11.3. This is where we should start when we think about the roles that happen within the home. Uh, The Apostle Paul here writes this. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, 
The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Right, just read that a second. The head of every man, every, every male, is Christ. So every, every man is to be submissive to Christ. Christ is the head. And the head of a wife is her husband. So, so the husband has a leadership role within the, the marriage. And the head of Christ is God, specifically referring to the Father. So, so this is where Jesus says, I don't do anything unless I, my Father tells me to do it. Now, for sure, we believe that the Father and the Son are equal. Right? Jesus is no less God than his Father. He is fully God, just like his Father is. There's equality in status, difference in role. And so the wife is to be subject, is to be a helper. The Holy Spirit himself is called the helper in the scriptures. This is not an idea or a term of denigration, though sadly it's been used that way. And abusive men and cowardly men have used this to to oppress women and to hurt women, and and that's wrong. God calls wives to humbly, selflessly submit to their husbands. Notice, not to all men. Look at verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So it's not saying, wives, be subject to every husband. Be subject to every man. No, have this, this particular role with your own husband. Then he says, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So some of you will say, well, I I can't follow that command. I I can't be submissive to my husband. I can't do that because he doesn't even love the Lord. I'm what what the scripture might call unequally yoked. I'm a Christian and he's not. How am I going to do that? And Peter actually assumes that this is the case. Now, this is actually a unique thing historically because in history, specifically at this time, if a man were to have a religion, the wife would always have his religion too. But when the gospel started spreading, you began to have wives who started to get converted, who said, I can't follow this pagan false god anymore. And, And that was culturally unacceptable. And Peter here is saying, it's okay that you're standing up for your God, but you need to have an attitude of humility and selflessness in the midst of it. There's an assumption that, that even if he doesn't obey the word. That may refer to, to, to men who are not Christians. It also may refer to Christians who are just not acting like it. Men, has that ever happened to us? Are there ever times you go, I love the Lord, but, but no one in your family could tell right now? And, and the call here. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their lives, their wives' lives. Here's the reality. What what Peter's assuming is that the words have already been spoken. And if you're in a relationship where you're married to a non-Christian, someone that is not yet a follower of Christ, you've spoken the words. They know where you stand. They know what you believe. Peter's saying, now, now win them with your conduct. With your conduct. And look at how the conduct is described in verse 2. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. Respectful meaning there, there's a genuine uh, concern for them. There's a genuine deference. There's a genuine humility. You honor, you respect this man as your husband. He also says your pure conduct. 
This gets to the idea of motives. This means that, that your conduct here is not manipulative. It's not being respectful and kind and loving in order to manipulate him and get something from it. It's simply to love him as you've been loved in Christ. A wife selflessly submits to her husband by her conduct, and sometimes God uses this to bring men to faith. I have a, a good friend, and a few of you know, uh, know this couple, Chuck and Kathy Bishop, and uh, Chuck is one of the elders at our Gilbert congregation, and, and Chuck was not a follower of Christ, and neither was Kathy, and Kathy had an experience where she came to faith in Christ, and, and Chuck was kind of in a difficult spot, and, and, and Kathy sadly got some advice from some, some Christians who said, just leave the bum. He's a jerk. There's no hope for him. Just, just follow Christ. Just, just leave him. And then another godly woman pulled her aside and said, hey, let me tell you about 1 Peter 3. And Kathy began to serve Chuck and to love Chuck respectfully, purely. And over time, God brought Chuck to faith. Now, this is not a promise. This, this is not a guarantee that this will happen. Nor does this mean that if you're married to a non-Christian and they haven't come to faith, it's because you stink, right? You haven't done a good enough job living in front of them. That's not what this is saying at all. It's saying your heart as a wife is, is selfless. It's humble. It's to serve the Lord. It's to serve your husband. And God may, in fact, use that. It's selfless by your conduct. It's also selfless by your priorities. He moves into this in verse 3. He says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. The word adorning, this is interesting, the word adorning is, is the Greek word cosmos. It's almost always used for, for creation or the world or, or the order of things. He's saying, Do not let your ordering Right? The cosmos is, is how, the, how the universe is ordered. He's saying, do not let your ordering, th this has to do with your priorities. Th this has to do with, with what you're known for. He's saying, ladies, if you're in this type of, of situation, if, if you're trying to love your wife or love your husband, don't order yourself on externals. But, verse 4, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, when I hear this, what he's saying, right, is, is don't let your focus be on, on how you look outside, but let it be on the internal beauty. I always think of the movie Liar, Liar with Jim Carrey, you know, where he has to tell the truth, and his, his son is grilling him these questions to find out if he's going to tell the truth, and, and, he's, and his son asks him, so is beauty really on... His son asks, is beauty really just on the inside? And, and Jim Carrey replies, that's just what ugly people say. <laughs> Remember that scene? That's what it feels like he's saying. But, but, but Peter's not saying, hey, hey, ladies, let yourself go. Just doesn't, it doesn't matter how you look. Uh, don't braid your hair. Don't, don't wear nice clothing. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't let your priority be that. You want to try to impress your husband? You want to try to serve your husband? For sure you can do it physically, but, but there's more to life than that. It's mostly about what he says, verse 4, this hidden person of the heart, this imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. There's something so beautiful about a calm, gracious, humble daughter of Christ. That is beautiful. I remember when I was getting to know Molly, 
and she was a follower of Christ, and I was newer in my faith, and I was really actually very concerned that I don't think I could date her because I have a lot of areas I need to grow, and, and I don't know if I could, could lead her in any meaningful way. And, and I thought she was cute for sure, but, but as I got to know her, you know, physically and, and the way she looked became more and more attractive to me the more I got to know her heart. Peter's saying, wives, let your priority be that. Let it be about your character. And let's just say this for a moment to the gentleman. Gentlemen, what if your vision of beauty was the same as God's? Part of the reason that women are, are tended, tend to prioritize how they look and the superficial rather than the important is because that's what we praise them for. Listen, if here's how I wrote it in my notes. If inner beauty comes from God's affection and attention then you're beautiful. And this is saying in God's sight, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, that's what God goes, 10, that's a 10. Gentlemen, what if we had the same standard of beauty? It'd be impressive. So the, the wife is to be subject to her husband by her conduct, by her priorities, but also by her faith. Uh, Peter then goes into Sarah. He gives Sarah as an example. And here's what he says in, in verse 5. He says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, used to order themselves. Why would they do it this way? Well, did you see verse 5? Because they hoped in God. This is about your hope in God. The reason you would submit to your husband, the reason you would be selfless, the reason you would pursue this inner, gentle, quiet beauty is for the Lord because your faith is in him. Your hope is in him. Verse 6, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that's frightening. You know the opposite of faith? It's fear. Every time I do a wedding, I quote this verse because the call to follow a husband is scary. I mean, look at us. It's a scary proposition. You're, you're going you're gonna to submit yourself to this. He's a sinner, right? I mean, he's, and he makes dumb decisions sometimes. And there's areas where he's way out over his skis. He doesn't know what he's doing. And you're called to follow that. And the tendency would be to be afraid. But if you hope in the Lord, if you say, the Lord is my trust, the Lord will give him guidance, the Lord will give my husband wisdom, I'm going to trust God, then, then you're selfless, not just with your conduct and your priorities, but with your faith. That's how a great God-honoring marriage is built. What about men? Well, a great God-honoring marriage... It looks for a husband like selflessly understanding his wife. Selflessly understanding his wife. The call up to this point has been to wives to selflessly submit to their husbands. And now Peter says, but, but this applies to men also. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now notice, we had said that likewise in verse 1 referred back up to these other passages that talked about the humble attitude that would lead you to submit to government and to submit to authority and to submit to a husband. And now he's saying that same attitude should be in husbands. Now let's get this clear. He's not saying that the, that the husband and wife have the exact same role. But what he is saying is that they should have the same attitude 
of selflessness, the same attitude of humility. And this is insanely cross-cultural and countercultural. I mean, think about this just for a moment. In this day and age, women were treated like property. And Peter here is saying, have a humble attitude where you don't just view your wife as a commodity. You don't view her as property. You, you think about her. You live with her in an understanding way. That is so countercultural to his culture. It's countercultural even to our culture. So anyone that wants to come and say, well, the Bible is just about oppressing women, th- that's actually not true. Peter is calling husbands to treat wives in a godly way, in an honoring way, in a way that lifts them up rather than pushes them down. The Bible does the exact opposite of that accusation. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. What what would that look like? How would a husband selflessly understand his wife? Well, first he'd know her. By his knowing her, live with your wives in an understanding way. That, that word understanding is the, the, the word gnosis. It's where we get the idea of knowledge. Live with her in a knowing way. Gentlemen, do you know her, her likes and her dislikes and her fears and her dreams and her insecurities and her hopes and her favorites? You, you, do you know all that? You know her strengths. You know her weaknesses. And then it's not just that you know that, right? He doesn't say, husbands, understand your wives. And every husband would go, uh, I'm in big trouble. <laughs> He's saying, husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way. Live with her in a knowing way. So you know these things about her. Congratulations. Now, now live in light of that. So it took me about three years in our marriage for me to realize that even though Molly loved sports and even though she was a college athlete, uh, she didn't appreciate lack, locker room style trash talk. Now, I mean, it took a while. I'm, I'm thick headed, right? It shouldn't take that long. But, but I didn't realize that that, wasn't, that didn't build her up very much. And the, the kind of teasing and needling and stuff that I would do with my buddies doesn't really make her feel like she's understood. Right? So it's living with your wife in a knowing way, knowing her. This is, I, I know I recommended a marriage book, but, but in general, this is the problem I have with marriage books, is marriage books tell me how to love the author's wife. And I'm not married to her. Right, right? Some, listen, each of us has a different wife. And, and, and there's similarities, to be sure. There's generalities, to be sure. But there's specifics. And a, and a godly, great marriage it has a husband who understands that. It, it also happens by his honoring her. It says, verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Notice the equality that's shown there in that idea of heirs with you in the grace of life. This is what's so cool. In, In this culture, the only people who could be heirs were firstborn sons. And so what Peter is saying, he's saying even women get to be heirs 
in the gospel. Even women get to be heirs of the kingdom of God. So there's an equality here, and yet there is a difference again. And so he says, honor that difference. And he says it this way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Some of us would go, weaker vessel. What, what does that mean? That sounds like kind of an insult. Is it, what's that talking about? And, and a vessel is simply uh, something that, that carries something. I, most commentators seem to agree here that what Peter's referring to is physical strength. Mark Driscoll has an analogy that I think is helpful in this, and uh, here's kind of what he says. He says that men are like a thermos, and uh, women are like a wine glass. Which one's better? Neither. They both hold liquid. This one holds a little more. This one holds a little less. And if they ever collide, who's going to win? The thermos. And so this is saying, husbands, even though you're strong and even though you're rugged, don't use that strength to crush your wife but honor her. Here's how Driscoll says it. He says, men are taught throughout life from sports to business to find a weakness and exploit it. But that kind of thinking, while fine in some arenas of life, will destroy a wife and a marriage. Some of your marriages are, are crumbling because a husband hasn't understood this. And he's treated you like one of the guys and it's not working. And so rather than than being abusive, rather than using his strength to dominate, a husband is to use his strength to honor her, to show her honor physically and emotionally and verbally and financially and parentally and spiritually in all these ways to honor her. Or else... And there's a big consequence at the end of verse 7. If you don't do that, men, if, if you're not willing to, to show respect for your wife, to understand her, to honor her, there's a big consequence. Look at it in the end of verse 7. So that your prayers may not be hindered. If you won't live with your wife in an understanding way, meaning you won't listen to her, You won't observe her needs. You won't take into account what she wants and needs. God won't listen to you either. Doesn't mean God won't hear you. He'll just kind of go, la, 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 la. I can't hear you. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Some of you, you've been praying for a breakthrough in your life. You've been praying for a breakthrough with your kids. You've been praying for a breakthrough in a job. You've been praying for God to use you in some big way, and yet you're not living with your wife in an understanding way. And you're going, God, why why aren't you hearing me? And he's saying, your wife is asking the same question. Great God-honoring marriages have wives who selflessly submit to their husbands and husbands who selflessly understand and honor their wives. But that's not the world that most of us live in, right? I mean, it feels a little Pollyannish here, right? What are you really describing? I mean, how how does that even happen, right? Some of you are going, that's the furthest thing from my experience I could ever imagine. How how is that possible? 
What's possible only two ways. This kind of selflessness is possible only first if you will change your expectations of marriage. See, part of the the reason that we have a hard time with these verses and part of the reasons why so many marriages are broken is because our expectations of what they should be are jacked. They're they're jacked by our culture in particular, and we adopt those, and we live into those, and they're they're screwed up big time. Here's a description of it from a, a gal named Tara Parker Pope. She's a New York Times writer, and here's what she writes about marriage. She says, isn't marriage supposed to be about putting the relationship first? Not anymore. For centuries, marriage was viewed as an economic and social institution. And the emotional and intellectual needs of the spouses were secondary to the survival of the marriage itself. But in modern relationships, people are looking for a partnership, and they want partners who make their lives more interesting, who who help each of them attain valued goals. She calls it the me marriage. We're in a time of me marriage. You don't get married because the institution's better for raising kids or better for society. You do it to be fulfilled. You do it to be happy. And, and therefore, when, when marriage doesn't go the way you want, you discard it and you, you set it aside and you get, maybe get married again if there's a better opportunity for happiness. This is the view of marriage. This is why many people say, well, why would I even bother with this? I can be fulfilled without getting the piece of paper. It's not viewed this way. It's not viewed in, in a covenantal way. And I'm making a promise before God. It's not viewed like that. It's viewed as the path to personal fulfillment. Which, by the way, let me just pause here for a second. That is why, that is why gay marriage is inevitable in our culture. Because if people view marriage as purely about the personal fulfillment of individuals rather than about what it does to the community, how it impacts the world. If it's just about the personal happiness of two people, then who are you to say who can and can't get married? Who are you to say that two people who love each other can't do, right? That's the argument. Some of you feel that way. Others of you have heard that argument. It makes complete sense only if you adopt the expectations that our culture has of marriage. But those are not biblical expectations of marriage. Marriage is designed to honor one another and to help us grow in the image and likeness of Christ. Sadly, this, this view of, of marriage that, that it's about me and it's about my fulfillment, it actually, it actually creates more disillusionment. It does more harm to marriage than it helps it because what inevitably happens is you marry someone and you realize, I don't like them very much. And they're not that likable, and I'm not that happy. And and then you get disillusioned with the whole process. Here's how Tim Keller says it. He says, to conduct a me marriage requires two completely well-adjusted, happy individuals with very little in the way of emotional neediness of of their own or character flaws that need a lot of work. The problem is there is almost no one like that out there to marry. And then he makes this point in his book. He quotes from Stanley Hauerwas, who's a scholar at Duke. And Hauerwas basically says, here's the problem, is you always marry the wrong person. Because you think you know who they are, but you really don't. And even if you do know who they are, once they're married to you, they'll change. 
And so you always marry the wrong person. And so if this is about fulfillment, if this is about happiness, if this is about how I can maximize my, my personal pursuit of fulfillment in, in this, it, it's never going to work. You're always going to be disillusioned. And then you're going to build up resentments and bitterness and unforgiveness and, and, and all of that scar tissue is never going to get worked out unless you change your expectations for marriage. Unless you realize that, that marriage is not for your happiness, it's for your holiness. It's for you to grow more and more into the image of Christ. It's to help you grow in selflessness. Remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, if anyone would come after me, they need to deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. If you're going to follow me, you've got to die, he says. And what, what does God do to help us die to ourselves? He gives us a spouse whose personal goal in life is to help you die to yourself. And that's painful at times, and that hurts at times, but it's such a grace of God. It's such a gift. One last quote from Keller. He says this, The Christian teaching does not offer a choice between fulfillment and sacrifice, but rather mutual fulfillment through mutual sacrifice. You get that? The path to happiness is actually the path of self-denial. If you will both take that path, there's actually more fulfillment there. He says, if two spouses each say, I'm going to treat my self-centeredness as the main problem in the marriage, then you have the prospect of a truly great marriage. Are you convinced of that yet for you? Your selfishness is the primary problem in your marriage? Some of you, it's like, yeah, that took about two seconds for me to figure that out. Others of you, it's harder to feel that way. They're the one that's looked at pornography. They're the one that's had an affair. They're the one that's been mean and cruel and abusive. They're the one that's been uncaring, not me. And yet, if you will begin to die to yourself, if you will begin to to see your sin and your pride and your sinful responses to being sinned against, if you see that as your main problem, there begins to be hope. So we need to change our expectations of marriage, but, but finally, we need to be controlled by the love of Christ. See, if, if the call to follow Christ is a call to die to ourselves, well, what does that? It's the love of Christ. Here's what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. He says, For the love of Christ controls us, that's our love for Christ and Christ's love for us. That controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He's saying when you've been joined to Christ by faith, you've died to yourself you've realized that your selfishness and your sin is your main problem. You die to yourself as you're united to Christ so that you no longer have to live for yourself. This is why if you're here today and you're going through marriage and you're trying to do it on your own, 
without God in your life, without a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're here and you would call yourself a follower of Christ and yet you're still living independently of him when it comes to your marriage, there's, there's a, a time here, a call here to repent and to trust in Christ. To trust in him in such a way that you realize that he was selfless for you, that he died to himself for you, to have that melt your heart in such a way that you go, I don't live for me, I live for God, and if I live for God, I want to honor him, I want to live for him, I'll submit to my husband to honor Christ, I'll live with my wife in an understanding way to honor Christ, not because they're deserving of it, but because he is. That's how you get a great God-honoring marriage. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us so dearly. God, thank you for the opportunity to be sharpened and grown and changed through marriage. Had many here today are married and, and need your help. Many here today as well are, are not married, some that would like to be and others that never, ever want to be. And yet, God, this issue is so important to your heart and it's so important to our church and our lives and our world that, that we ask for your help. God, we ask that, that by your grace we could die to ourselves, live for you, and therefore selflessly serve one another. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to respond to that now. And... Uh, we're going to do that a couple of different ways. The, the first way is... is